welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to today's podcast on a really fascinating topic, plant-based proteins. Uh, I'm Linda Bregan. I'm a senior attorney with the Environmental Law Institute and director of ELI's Center on State, Tribal, and Environmental Programs. So if you're like me, you've heard about or even tasted some of the new alternatives to meat, so-called alternative proteins uh, that are gaining traction in grocery stores and restaurants around the country. Uh, The plant-based Impossible Burger is even in Burger King and other fast food restaurants. But like me, you may also have a lot of questions. So why doesn't that Impossible Burger or Beyond Meat Burger taste the same as that standard veggie burger we've had for years? And what's on the horizon in terms of new alternative meat products? But for our audience today, perhaps the most important question is, what are the implications of plant-based proteins for the environment and climate change in particular? And how can environmental law and policy take into account the growing availability of alternative proteins? With me today to help answer these questions is Nigel Barilla, who is a regulatory attorney with the Good Food Institute, a nonprofit organization based in Washington, D.C. Nigel focuses on regulatory issues affecting cutting-edge food products, such as alternative proteins, uh, including food labeling, safety, and nutrition. He has also worked on several lawsuits involving food labeling issues. Nigel received his BS from Duke in neuroscience and his JD from Harvard Law School, where he was an editor of the Environmental Law Review. So as you can tell, the Good Food Institute is bringing a lot of firepower to bear on the issues associated with alternative proteins. Welcome, Nigel. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Well, before we dive into the substance, can you tell us about the Good Food Institute and the various types of work it does to promote alternative proteins? Sure. So the Good Food Institute, we're we're a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and and we're on a mission to build a sustainable, secure, and just food supply. Much of our emphasis is on the sustainability of the protein that that we're going to need to feed a growing world. We engage through three main programmatic areas, uh, the corporate engagement team, uh, the science and technology team, or SciTech team, and the policy team. In corporate engagement, we, we engage with uh, institutions, restaurants, grocers, uh, food service companies on adopting sustainable alternative protein sources to, to conventional meat. The SciTech team works with a variety of scientists in, in academia and industry um, and is also working on promising open access scientific research um, into a variety of alternative protein sources. And the policy team, which is, which is where I work, Um, We work on securing government support for alternative proteins, and we work with legislators and regulators to ensure that alternative proteins can compete on a level playing field with conventional proteins. And uh, through through these mission areas, we want to bring about a a sustainable future where we'll no longer be calling alternative proteins alternative. We'll just call them proteins. Well, thank you for that that background. And um, and to set the stage further, can you tell us what types of products right now are included under the umbrella of alternative proteins? Sure, we, we use the label alternative protein um, the way we do because a lot of consumers, particularly in the US, think of protein as meaning meat as you know a product of, of conventional animal agriculture. So when we say alternative, we mean alternatives to that conventional those conventional products. But 
under this umbrella of alternative proteins, we, we mainly focus on three main classes of product. First, we have the purely plant-based products, um, like, like the, the Beyond or Impossible burgers that, that you mentioned, Linda, and especially those products that can be substituted into the diet in, in place of conventional meat, conventional eggs, or conventional dairy products. Of course, people have been getting their protein from plant-based sources um, since time immemorial <laughs> from, from sources like beans and nuts and tofu. But we're mainly focused on, on replicating the, the culinary and sensory experience that consumers want from things like, like meat and cheese. The second kind of alternative protein we work on is what we call fermentation proteins. Now, this is about using the power of microbes like yeast or microalgae to turn starches or, or even the air we breathe into rich protein sources. If you've ever eaten yogurt or cheese or sauerkraut or kimchi or, or uh, even things as basic as, as bread and beer and wine, um, you've had the benefit of friendly microbes that, that make the foods that we, we know and love. Um, and we want to use these tiny powerhouses even more to make even better protein sources as, as a component of our protein supply. Third kind of alternative protein is the most cutting edge of all, and that's growing real animal meat directly from animal cells. Um, and we call this cultivated or cultured meat. Um, in the same way we brew beer using yeast cells, um, we can put real animal cells in a controlled environment where they are well-fed and warm and happy um, and let them develop into muscle tissue that we recognize as meat. This is something that scientists and several companies today do on a small scale, and there's a lot of investment behind the, the technical and engineering challenges um, in scaling it up uh, to produce it for, for the mass market. So stay tuned to that because it's, it's closer than you might think. It's fascinating. So for today, um, let's focus on plant-based proteins as those are already making a big splash in the market and save for another day a discussion of cultured meat and other alternative proteins and what I'm sure is a plethora of issues associated with their production and distribution and consumption. So Nigel, could we start just by discussing briefly, we already have touched on this, some of the plant-based protein products currently available, um, the size of the market for these products in the U.S. and internationally, and and whether you expect the market to grow, and, and if so, the likely trajectory. Sure. So the, the, the biggest segments of the market right now in, in plant-based are in, in plant-based dairy products, um, which we've seen grow rapidly in, in recent years, and plant-based meat products. And I, I'd say that both, both classes of products are on, are on a growth trajectory that I would say is, is explosive. It's, it's double digits in percentage terms. We don't yet have the sales numbers for, for 2020, but from 2017 to 2019, the overall plant-based uh, market in the U.S. grew by 29%. That's roughly 14% uh, annually. All the signs here are that this trend is continuing and it's, it's driven by consumer demand. There's a lot of untapped potential here, but that's kind of a nice way of saying that uh, that this growth is starting from a relatively small baseline in comparison to the conventional protein industry. In the plant-based dairy sector, you may have noticed in, in your local dairy case that plant-based milks like almond milk and soy milk take up significant room and, and now they're about 10% of the total fluid milk market. Other plant-based dairy products like plant-based yogurts and cheeses, they're not quite there yet, but they're also growing rapidly even faster than, than, uh, than fluid milk. 
Plant-based meat, on the other hand, um, right now that's on the order of 1% of the conventional meat market. Um, but with double-digit growth, we think it could it could reach quickly uh, the, the point that, that plant-based dairy is at, um, if that's that's what consumers demand. And we, we see these trends also in other places in the world, such as Europe. Yeah, those are impressive uh, growth numbers. One of the questions I have, uh, Nigel, is it, it seems um, to me for um, plant-based proteins and other alternative proteins to really gain serious traction in the market, um, it has to not be a niche market, right? It, it has to have very wide appeal. And so I was very encouraged when I saw Burger King and some of the other fast food restaurants um, foraying into um, to alternative proteins. Can, do you know how that happened? I mean, it seems sort of unusual to me. I, I think it happened through through consumer demand. I mean, obviously Burger King, on their front, they worked out a, a deal with a, a big supply contract with Impossible Foods, but they they saw a market for it and consumer interest for it, and and I, I don't think they'd be doing it if they didn't see didn't see profit in it. You know, I, I think that Burger King was was one of the first large scale. Uh, fast food chains to introduce uh, one of the more old school veggie burgers uh, uh, well over a decade ago, probably two decades ago at this point. And, and this was perhaps the next step for them in, in terms of catering to, to segment of market. But, but what, what we've, what they, they have seen um, through, through some of their, um, their own research that, that they've put out um, is that, Sales overall at Burger King have had went up as as a result of adopting the the Impossible Burger. Not not just you know sales of the Impossible Burger, but other things too. Um, you know when when you offer this this option to consumers, then you you might get a whole family coming in because because one of them wants to try it. It's uh, funny, Nigel, that you mentioned um, the, it was actually, I believe, a black bean burger at, at Burger King because uh, my son played travel baseball all the way through high school and we were traveling all the time and on the road and eating at a lot of fast food restaurants. And I would always, if we went to Burger King, order the black bean burger. And a lot of times people just, or it was some kind of veggie burger. And a lot of times the person taking the order would just look completely surprised and it would have to go have a conversation and it and we'd often have to wait um, longer than normal because obviously a lot of people weren't ordering their veggie burger um, and I was just so delighted they were offering it um, can you tell us a little bit about what happened why does the impossible burger um, taste better to a lot of people than a standard veggie burger yeah, so Impossible is an interesting case. I talked about the, the different kinds of alternative proteins earlier, and it's actually not a purely plant-based product. It, it contains a component that is what we, what we classify as a fermentation-based ingredient, which is um, a heme protein that they, they isolated from soybeans. Heme is an iron-containing compound that traps oxygen for, for many living things. Um, and uh, it contributes to the sort of bloody taste um, of, of, of meat burgers. Impossible Ones isolated this from a soybean, put it into a, a yeast cell and, and has it produ produced um, on a large scale. 
um, through fermentation. Um, and then they use that as an ingredient in, in their Impossible Burger and it makes it taste really meaty. And they obviously did a lot of other work with getting the texture just right, um, getting, getting the, the nice fatty crisp and, and, and other, other, you know, beefy components. But the, the secret ingredient there was really the, the heme, the fermentation produced heme um, that they use. Now that's really interesting because clearly people are a wider group of people uh, seem to uh, prefer these new alternative um, plant-based proteins to what, you know, we used to call the, the veggie burger. So can you tell us what we know to date about the environmental footprint of plant-based proteins as compared to meat-based proteins? Sure. There, there, there are varying uh, estimates out there um, based on differing life cycle assessments and how you conduct them and what type of meat you're talking about and what you're replacing it with. But to, to speak generally, plant-based meat is about an order of magnitude more efficient on measures of land use, water use, greenhouse gas emissions, agricultural emissions like, like nitrogen runoff that, that can harm uh, aquatic ecosystems. So in, in broad terms, we're talking reductions of about 90%, more or less, on each of these fronts. This is especially true when you're talking about beef cattle, which take up a lot of a lot of our agricultural land and they emit methane, a potent greenhouse gas. Some other animals are more efficient at converting feed into protein than beef cattle are, but it's still an order of magnitude less efficient than just eating the plants directly. This makes sense because it takes a lot of, of feed energy and water just to keep an animal alive and grow it. And there are parts of the animal that you don't use to turn into meat. And so from just from just from first principles, you're not going to get out of an animal all the plant protein that you put into it. And the resulting environmental and resource impact from that is is confirmed by every life cycle assessment that we know of, even if, you know, the fine details depend on a lot of factors, including where you're sourcing the meat, what kind of meat it is and so on. Those are those are really notable, notable numbers. Um, a lot of the people listening to this podcast today are environmental lawyers and policymakers. So I'd like to start with a discussion of some of the legal barriers or questions arising around alternative proteins. I understand there have been lawsuits over the labeling of alternative proteins. Can you tell us about those and the status of those legal challenges? Yes. So, so we're talking about, you know, big changes in the way consumers view protein and, and, uh, I think when there are big changes, there's always the potential for, for legal conflict to, to come out of that. And um, the, the explosive growth that, that we were just discussing um, has attracted a lot of attention from the competing industries that you know, fear losing their market share. Now, I, I don't wanna paint the meat industry with, with a broad brush here because there are a lot of meat companies out there that are increasingly viewing themselves as protein companies and, and investing in alternatives. And we're thrilled to see that. But, uh, much of the litigation has been driven by um, cattle rancher groups and dairy farmer groups who, who view these pro new products as a threat to their market share. And so in, in various states across the country, um, they've gotten friendly legislators to write a series of um, confusing laws about the product labeling these products. Some of them, some of these laws just have big broad statements like you can't misrepresent plants as meat. And the, the idea here is that somehow if you use, you use common terms that consumers understand like veggie burger or veggie bacon, that's somehow wrong and it's gonna be confusing to consumers because they're not meat burgers and meat bacon. 
And now some of these laws have, have started to get incredibly specific, you know, cordoning off lists of terms like bratwurst or cutler, cutlets or ribs and saying you can't put words like those on, on plant-based product labels. Um, they've even targeted other kinds of alternative products as well, such as, you know, rice cauliflower you may have seen. Uh, some consumers like little bits of cauliflower as a low-calorie alternative to rice. And just like the meat industry, the rice industry doesn't want the word rice used on any other products labels. So it's 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 a fairly ridiculous series of laws. And the argument that consumers are confused by products like these is simply preposterous. The Good Food Institute, along with um, some allied organizations, including the ACLU, the Animal Legal Defense Fund, we've filed lawsuits in a number of a number of states challenging these laws that have been passed as unconstitutional restrictions on commercial free speech um, because these laws are, are unjustified by any real harm to consumers. Um, rather, it's just an incumbent industry seeking to protect itself from, from the competition. And there are some other groups out there, including the Institute for Justice, which is a libertarian law firm um, that have sued in, in some of the other states. In 2019, we won a preliminary injunction uh, in our lawsuit in Arkansas. Um, the judge there agreed with our First Amendment argument. Uh, we're, we're awaiting a final decision on the merits for a permanent injunction against, against Arkansas's law. Um, the other states we filed suit in, in Missouri and uh, Louisiana, uh, those challenges are still pending. Sounds like there's a lot of activity at the state level. Do you anticipate any legislation being introduced at the federal level in the U.S. Congress? And maybe I'll just segue that into, you know, uh, the following question of whether you expect any major changes with a new presidential administration and, and essentially a new Congress with respect to not only regulatory, but also funding priorities related to plant-based proteins. Yeah, so on, on the... On the federal level, there, there have been a few pieces of proposed legislation that, that take after the, the state uh, the state laws that we were just, um, I was just describing. Um, it, uh, those, those proposals haven't, haven't really gone anywhere. As far as the, the broader changes in Washington that we've seen recently and questions of, of regulatory uh, priorities and funding, on, on the regulatory front, we don't expect a huge change. The, the US FDA, which is the main regulator on, of, for, for plant-based products, they're, they're pretty science-based and that stays pretty consistent from administration to administration. But with the Democratic administration and now a, a Democratic Congress, um, we have a great deal of hope for possible funding for alternative protein research as part of an effort to address climate change for its own sake as, as an area where the US can be kind of a global leader in, in leading this, this new field of research and developing the products of the future. Other countries already have started investing in alternate proteins and we'd like to see more of that uh, here in the US as well. There's also great potential uh, to make this a priority for, for improving the livelihoods of farmers, growing higher value products for human consumption rather than uh, so much of the cheap animal feed that gets grown today. 
That's really interesting. So circling back to your assessment of the lower environmental footprint of plant-based proteins, uh, I'd like to discuss ways in which environmental laws and policies could foster the adoption of plant-based proteins. Last fall, uh, Environmental Law Institute convened a webinar discussion that included one of your colleagues at the Good Food Institute, Emily Hennessy, and, and others to discuss how plant-based proteins can be part of municipalities' efforts to reduce their carbon footprints. Uh, could you explain a little bit about how municipalities can encourage consumption of low-carbon foods, such as plant-based proteins, through means such as food purchasing or procurement policies or, or health guidelines? Yes, absolutely. So many many municipalities have have already looked at just this issue as part of uh, part of a plan to address uh, the climate impact of of. Uh, of climate change. Um, this is another area where we badly need federal leadership, but um, a lot of municipalities have have taken lead on this. Part of it is is procurement. You know, putting programs such as Meatless Monday into into schools and government cafeterias. We've seen, um, or simply just offering plant based options or making those options uh, the default while still having animal proteins available um, in in municipal functions. Any serious approach to addressing climate change, in my view, is, is going to take food into account. And uh, municipalities that have taken the lead on this issue have started looking at, at approaches such as these. Yeah, it seems to me like there's just a huge opportunity there, given that, you know, I think close to 10,000 cities have signed on to the Global Covenant of Mayors and pledged to reduce their carbon footprints. So I, I bet we will observe more and more municipalities considering food in, in their climate action plans. So at Environmental Law Institute, we're also increasingly interested in what we call private environmental governance mechanisms by which private companies adopt sustainability measures through voluntary agreements or contracts or other means. And they do this even though they're not required to do so by regulations. Is there a role for private governance here? And in particular, perhaps model supply chain contract provisions that companies or sports venues and others could use to require their suppliers to provide plant-based proteins? I, I think there's absolutely a role for that. Um, and we we have worked, uh, or our corporate engagement team in particular has, has worked with a number of uh, private uh, institutions in, in sort of this, this exact goal of uh, you know corporate responsibility wanting to take the lead on sustainability issues and, and climate change and that's certainly if, if you know companies or schools or other organizations want want to take the lead on on addressing these issues uh, they could they could certainly write that into say supply contracts or procurement policies or, or so on to 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 meet those those sustainability and, and climate targets. Nigel, we, you know, we've touched on the importance of plant-based proteins in helping uh, businesses and municipalities achieve carbon reduction goals. And you, you just mentioned schools, and I've been wondering whether there are also measures that states could take, particularly perhaps through their food, uh, through their school systems, you know, to adopt more plant-based proteins as a way of meeting their environmental goals. Yeah, I mean, so public schools and you know members of the, the the USDA school lunch program and so on. There, there's actually already written into that uh, broad 
broad principles for incorporating plant-based products. Um, and so they, they could take advantage of the fact that federal, federal school lunch requirements, for example, already require this uh, or already allow for this. Um, and it, it could very much be part of, of state or municipal po policy to, to make these options available or make them uh, more common. And, and this could certainly be part of, of the comprehensive approach that we're going to need to address the, the threat of climate change. Nigel, this has been a really interesting discussion. Um, in closing, is there anything else you want to make sure to share with the environmental practitioners and policymakers that may listen to this podcast? I would, I would say just start thinking about these issues. If, if, we, do, if we do adopt some larger scale policy, hopefully at the federal level, to, to address big picture problems like, like climate change or even agricultural pollution, um, there are, there are going to be, need to be a lot of lawyers who know about these issues and the, the, the big legal and policy approaches that are going to take into account the differing environmental impacts of the way we source our food. We don't currently have a comprehensive plan for addressing climate emissions in the United States, but someday we might, and, and this almost certainly is going to be a part of it if, it, if it's going to be a comprehensive uh, approach. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you'll consider returning to do another podcast soon about the other types of alternative proteins, such as cultured meat. I'd be glad to. This was great. Well, terrific. And, and thanks again for helping us understand the environmental implications of these really important new developments with alternative proteins. And we will talk with you again soon. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.